fact that quantum entanglement, Einstein's spooky action, helps the European robin navigate its way down to warmer climates every fall has a cer certain romance to it. Um, so you, I, I, I would like this to be the correct theory. Of course, liking something, wanting it to be the correct theory doesn't mean it's the correct theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, but it, 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 it's a fun, interesting application of one of the, the, the weirder features of the quantum world, quantum entanglement, playing an important role in a, in a living, uh, living animal, helping it find its way. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with Pins podcast and the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 185. And this episode is with Jim Al-Khalili, who is University of Surrey Distinguished Chair in Physics and University Chair in the Public Engagement in Science. And Jim is a theoretical physicist, lots of work in physics. He's an author with lots of books and a broadcaster with lots of documentaries. And in this episode, we talk all about the fundamentals of quantum biology is that's his current project and what his group is working on at the University of Surrey. We talk about just what quantum biology is, since if the world is quantum mechanical, then biology must be too. We talk about how some animals like the robin, which is my namesake, might take advantage of quantum mechanics, how exotic phenomena, some exotic phenomena like quantum tunneling, decoherence might fit into the biological world, how quantum mechanics relates to the numerous arrows of time, and then we also get into Jim's personal favorite interpretation of quantum mechanics, because it's pretty hard to have a conversation about QM without talking about the interpretations and, and theories as well. Jim's latest book is The Joy of Science, and there's a link to that in the description. I will also mention the Patreon if you would like to support the show, that is a great way to do it beyond leaving reviews, subscribing, comments, that sort of thing. After four Patreon episodes now, or episodes, the, since the Patreon has been up, I've decided to jettison for the time being transcripts since people don't seem to be that interested in them and they take a lot of work just to do poorly. So there is a link to add free episodes and then show notes. Now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Jim. In, in 2014, you and, and John Joe McFadden published Life on the Edge, which as I understand it, is the, the first popular book on quantum biology. But when we were talking before recording, you told me that quantum biology is also your current project nine, nine years later. So mm. what's going on at, at the University of Surrey right now? <laughs> well, we're, we're hoping it's becoming sort of a, a hotbed center for research in quantum biology, admittedly a subject that is... Uh, uh, still sort of quite niche and probably speculative and even controversial, maybe some would say. Actually, the, my collaboration and discussions on whether quantum mechanics plays a role in biology with John Joe McFadden, who's a molecular biologist, I'm a theoretical physicist, actually goes back to, to the late 90s. <laughs> we, we, um, 
the story is that John Joe came to, so he's, he's based at Surrey uh, with me as well, but he's in the, the life sciences school. He came and gave a seminar in the physics department on whether quantum mechanics might, you know, speculatively play a, an important functional role in biology. And most of my colleagues dismissed it. I decided that I'd want to chat to him a bit more about it. It sounded intriguing. And so we've been dabbling with it since then. 2014, we published the popular science book on it, as you say, Life on the Edge. Still, I think the only popular science book on quantum biology. But by that point, we had started to get a bit more serious. So my, my background in theoretical physics and nuclear physics was, you know, I was, I was ready to shift my interests and John Joe likewise. Uh, and so, you know, we got funding, we got grad students, uh, we got research grants. And, and today it's something that I'm actually, you know, so some fraction of my research activity is, is looking seriously at uh, these, these quantum effects in biology. Hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned immediately that it's very niche. And I should add that relative to fields like quantum mechanics, which have had time to get into the zeitgeist, it's still quite nascent. So yeah. I think it would behoove us to start out with just some of the basics. And sure. if we live in a quantum mechanical world, then isn't all biology quantum? So what, what yeah. distinguishes the sorts of problems and approaches in, in this field from the more familiar dimensions of biology? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. And, and it's something that people sort of, that's the most people's initial reaction. You know, everything is made of atoms. Uh, and so if atoms obey the rules of quantum mechanics, then of course, you know, at some point, if you dig deep enough, life will also obey those rules. That's not what's meant by quantum biology in, in, in this sense. And we have to be careful because this, it treads this, um, not dangerous, but, you know, uh, rather controversial uh, uh, path. Because as soon as you start talking about quantum mechanics and life, you know, those who probably haven't studied quantum mechanics very quickly think, oh, OK, so that you said quantum mechanics explaining consciousness or quantum mm. mechanics, you know, will explain all sorts of wacky woo woo stuff. You know, oh, it explains telepathy and home. Telepathy is the favorite one because quantum entanglement. Oh, that's, that's why twins can. You know. So you sort of have to, to draw back from that. Physicists and chemists have been used to quantum mechanics. We've had almost a century now. And, and, you know, we use quantum mechanics every day. Without it, we wouldn't have developed much of our modern modern world. Um, biologists have by and large not worried or bothered about quantum mechanics. The point about quantum biology is not that down at the level of the chemical bonds that hold biomolecules together inside living cells must obey some sort of quantized rules yet yeah, of course but that's chemistry right and the chemist will say what's all the fuss about it's more that there are there seems to be evidence that there are certain um processes quantum processes uh, that take place inside living cells quantum tunneling quantum entanglement long-lived quantum coherence that are unexpected yeah. right you know because the usual argument is hang on a minute quantum mechanics is you know quantum effects are ephemeral they're very delicate we work hard to maintain quantum effects in our physics laboratories. We're trying to build quantum computers that don't, you know, decohere very, very quickly. You're telling me inside a hot, noisy, complex living cell, these quantum effects can play a functional role. Well, it seems like the evidence suggests that, yes, maybe they do. And for me, that I mean, may not be, may turn out to be complete red herring. But for me, it's 
so fascinating and so interesting that it's it's a worthwhile thing to do to to, to study it carefully to see what the truth is. Hmm. Well, I actually in a in a relatively just going back to the first thing you said in a relatively recent podcast, I just learned that quantum Bigfoot is a thing. So there are there are no wow. limits to which uh, <laughs> quantum terminology can be applied. But yeah, <laughs> it's a worry. I mean, I, I blame a lot of the physicists in the late 60s, early 70s, who were all high on LSD. And, mm -hmm. and all, you know, they thought, you know, quantum weirdness was was became almost like a cult mythical connection with Eastern mysticism. Uh, and and was trying to shake shake that off quantum mechanics is a serious description of the subatomic world um, mm -hmm. and if life has evolved the ability to maintain quantum coherence for long enough so that it plays a role such as the sort of work we're doing now looking at proton tunneling in dna then you know we need to try and model that and study it and carry out experiments to test if it's true or not but these are very mm -hmm. isolated specific examples where quantum mechanics mm -hmm. plays a role it's it's not we're not saying life doesn't exist without quantum mechanics but life may have evolved the ability to use the trickery of the quantum world and why wouldn't it if that gave it an advantage right absolutely i'd like to hold off on the the tunneling the entanglement and sure. coherence uh, which latter phenomenon i understand is quite important to your current work on the arrow of time just for the moment because mm. first there were some interesting conceptual difficulties that i encountered when i was uh, reading your work and preparing for this. And I was wondering what some of the technical difficulties are that come with the territory of, of blending quantum mechanics and life. So I saw that there were, I mean, specific difficulties involving studying quantum processes in living tissue. Yes, the it's all very well, you know, theorists like me uh, working with computational chemists and, and running computer simulations um, uh, deciding that we want to look at a simple process. So you isolate it, you know, the spherical cow in a vacuum business. Mm. Um, physicists are used to being able to isolate the mechanisms and phenomena they want to do. You know, we, we, we want to study, you know, in, an, in a laboratory, you know, we will turn things off. We will run our experiments near absolute zero in a vacuum. We'll shield it from its surroundings. And then, you know, you tweak dials, you, 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 you look at one variable at a time. You can't do that inside a living cell because there are thousands of biochemical reactions going on. So the experimental tests that would verify some of these theoretical predictions and model predictions are subtle and sometimes indirect. And I think that's why in quantum biology, theory is ahead of experiment. Um, one can study biomolecules using various spectroscopic techniques you know you can look you can use you know sort of uh, uh, um, high pulse lasers uh, to to excite these molecules and watch how they the decay and give the light off and there'll be certain signatures in terms of resonant behavior that could tell you something about the quantum nature of these molecules but it's tough you know it's um so it's difficult to turn off everything else inside a living cell to isolate the mechanism you're interested in. That's that's where the challenge is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, talking about lasers, I recently did an episode with the the Nobel laureate here at Stanford, Carl Wyman, on his isolation of the Bose-Einstein condensate and right. reducing uh, cellular 
cells to temperatures just just above absolute zero, they're not going to function too well no, <laughs> at no. that point. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is, of course, that uh, you know, essentially, what got a lot of ex- uh, people interested in the field is um, uh, Schrödinger's famous book, "What Is Life," uh, written back in 1944. Uh, a small book, almost a sort of almost like a popular science book. Um, it certainly was was in his ideas influenced Crick and Watson in their um, development of the double helix model of DNA. But he makes this, you know, simple statement that sits sticks with me anyway, which is that life, the the the, the order, the structure of life, uh, of of inside a living cell, is reminiscent of inanimate matter of equivalent complexity near absolute zero. So hmm. you take inanimate matter, certain materials, you cool them down to you know a few degrees Kelvin or below, and they will, you are. Um, calming down all the thermodynamic chaos, right. s- slowing everything down, and you start to see quantum effects, superconductivity, superfluidity kicking in at certain temperatures. Well, Schrödinger was arguing that living systems behave, you know, in, in terms of the low entropy, high order, the structure, uh, as though it's normal matter at, at low temperature. So it may be that we don't need to, to cool down living systems down to near absolute zero, they are exhibiting the sort of structure and behavior anyway that you would see in inanimate matter that's very cold. Hmm. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but is this line of reasoning, was it influential to you in beginning this work on the arrow of time and life? I mean, life somehow, uh, I mean, at least locally, seems to counteract entropy to some extent. Yes, I mean, I think it's... I think a lot of uh, physicists and chemists and philosophers, you know, there is something about the mystery of life that is sort of intangible, um, but it's fascinating. You know, there, there was a, um, a recent paper in Nature uh, um, on, on what's called assembly theory. It is, it is a, a new idea in chemistry that... Um, uh, sort of it works out the likelihood that chemistry can become biology you know what it what are what's the probability that you can get complexity emerging from simple uh building together simple atoms and molecules and i think the excitement there is that we have to admit we still don't know how chemistry becomes mm-hmm. biology you know the the origin of life despite some people arguing well it's it's a step step by step process and it's not you know fred hoyle's famous a wind blowing through a junkyard and, and creating a jumbo jet, at, you know, just instantaneously. It's a it's a slow process, but there is still something mysterious about it. And I, I guess that is part of the attraction. You know, you do wonder, did quantum mechanics play a role, say, in prebiotic chemistry, in the origin of life? I have no idea if it did or not, but that was may have been, I, I guess, in answer to your question, one of yeah. the factors that maybe got me excited in the first place even if we've now sort of pulled back a bit and this and trying to look at it more soberly and carefully Mm -hmm. yeah that that's interesting i never thought of it that way like i'm sure many people i first encountered i mean the the problem of how life emerges from raw materials in dawkins uh selfish gene and 
as I recall his description of life emerging from the primor primordial ooze or soup, it's really maybe it's kind of like a mechanical thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm using mechanical and distinct from quantum mechanical. Yes, um, but yes. So it's interesting to think that quantum mechanical phenomena might have played yeah. a role there. I think we know now that it's it's more than just stick all the ingredients in in a, in, in Darwin's warm pond or in a, in yeah. a, the, the famous Miller-Urey in 1950s experiment. You know, uh, organic materials, um, water, sunlight, the spark of life will you know would emerge. Uh, the likelihood of that happening is still hugely hugely tiny, uh, and so there's still something missing getting us to. Mm -hmm. A, a complex enough system that is able to replicate itself mm -hmm. once it does darwinian evolution kicks in and you're you know you're well on your way but it's mm -hmm. how do you get there in the first place well now that we've set some context but before we get to the era of time i think that quantum biology as we already mentioned is going to be very unfamiliar to our listeners it wasn't something that i'd thought uh, much about at all before this so i thought it would be a good idea to talk about a few examples. And the first that comes to my mind is, uh, it's actually what you bring, what you begin life on the edge with is, is my namesake, the Robin. And mm. from the outside, these birds, I mean, certainly seem to inhabit the, the classical world that we do, but where do quantum processes come into shape their observable behavior? This has become sort of the poster child of quantum biology, uh, a good just place because to start it's then. so fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the European robin, uh, which essentially lives its you know spring and summer up in northern Europe, Scandinavia, Sweden, uh, uh, Russia, and every fall it will migrate down to the Mediterranean looking for warmer weather, um, as many animals, marine mammals, birds, insects do. Uh, in a similar way that, for example, monarch butterflies will migrate every year from northeast Canada, eastern Canada, down down to Mexico. Um, in the 1970s, it was established that the European robin, that was, I think, the first uh, uh, creature that, that uh, was confirmed to have this ability, that it was able to utilize among the many tricks that migrating animals use to to navigate it was able to sense the earth's magnetic field the 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 uh, angle of inclination of the magnetic field so if you think about the earth as a giant dipole magnet uh, it, the, the the magnetic fields emerge vertically from the north and south magnetic poles and then around the equator they're parallel to the ground and so the 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 the, the bird in flying is able to sense the orientation mm. inclination of the magnetic field uh, there's a famous ornithology uh, um, ornithologist couple in Germany, uh, the Vilchkos, who would capture these robins in mid-migration uh, and uh, put put them inside these uh, little sort of containers, sort of uh, uh, um, cone-shaped. They'd have blotting paper, ink, uh, 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 ink at the bottom, and blotting paper up the side. So when the bird is at the bottom, it gets ink on its feet, and as it tries to fly to escape. From, from these containers, it tends to want to fly out in the direction that to continue its migratory journey. And so this is how they established that it was actually wanting to fly in that direction. How do they know it's a magnetic effect? Well, they would put 
they put Helmholtz coils, giant sort of magnetic coils on either side of the, the trap containing these birds. And they could have these coils um, in, in the reverse polarity to the Earth's magnetic field uh, with the same field strength. So when you turn them on, they cancel out any magnetic field. And when they do that, these birds fly randomly in all directions. As soon as they turn off the magnetic fields, the, the birds sense again the Earth's magnetic field and they want to fly in a particular direction. So there was a famous paper in the 1970s in the journal Science that established that these birds and then and later other marine mammals and insects have a built-in compass, some chemical compass somewhere in the body that gives them directional information. Of course, the mystery was, where is this compass? How does it work? Now, here we are, 2023, and the only theory in town, the only theory that has that has survived that is still in play is the idea that quantum entanglement is playing a crucial role mm. so quantum entanglement the idea that um two separated particles uh, are part of a single system however far apart they are you have to describe them as a single quantum state which means that affecting affecting one of them will will influence the other um it was also established that this chemical compass however it worked resided in the bird's retina because it was light activated uh, uh and so you know the, right. even there's a there's a hmm. there's a, a researcher in germany in ulm who designs these experiments where he 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 covers these birds with you know a bit like the executioner's mask that sort of covers the eyes yeah. <laughs> and and once these birds can't see they also can't sense the earth's magnetic field so it's triggered by photons entering the bird's eye. None of that is controversial. That is all sort of pretty well established science. Of course, what's controversial is how does it work? The theory is in quantum biology that photons enter the eye. Uh, a photon will knock one of a pair of coupled electrons in an atom within a, a protein molecule called cryptochrome that sits in the back of the retina. The photon knocks one of these electrons off, so it sort of gets knocked off and it sits on, a, on an adjacent atom still within this large protein made of, you know, thousands and thousands of atoms. But these two electrons remain quantum entangled, which means that the way they spin, whether they're both spinning up or one spinning up, one spinning down, the way they spin is very sensitive. The, 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 um, uh, the, the, the way they dance together is very sensitive to their orientation in the Earth's magnetic field. So even though it's very, very weak, it it's, has the ability, to, you know, to, to influence this delicate entangled state of these two electrons. Uh, and then, then when they collapse, when entanglement disappears, that sends certain messages to the bird's brain, telling it the orientation in, in the field. What's fun about this is that quantum entanglement famously was a phenomenon, a mechanism in quantum mechanics that Albert Einstein hated. Right. He called it spooky action at a distance. Mm -hmm. We are beginning to appreciate that quantum entanglement, and as part of my my research at the moment, is a fundamental feature of reality. F fundamental that we, I feel, we should be teaching undergraduate physics students about quantum entanglement. It's not really something they encounter in standard undergraduate textbooks yet. Mm. But it, the fact that quantum entanglement, Einstein's spooky action, helps the European robin navigate its way down to warmer climates every fall has a cer certain romance to it 
Um, so I, I, I would like this to be the correct theory. Of course, liking something, wanting it to be the correct theory doesn't mean it's the correct theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but it, 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 it's a fun, interesting application of one of the, the, the weirder features of the quantum world, quantum entanglement, playing an important role in a, in a living, uh, living animal, helping it find its way. Mm -hmm. Just a completely tangential comment. We can imagine what sight or smell are like for birds, but I, I wonder what it must be like uh, to sense magnetic fields. And yeah. especially, yeah, there's and, even there's a, sorry. There's a paper that suggests that there, that uh, what the bird sees is like some sort of dark patch or imposed oh, like, augmented reality on its field of vision, and and it tries to centralize that, like a pilot trying to get you know the crosshairs in there uh, when, when they're when they're flying in a plane uh, hmm. i guess since you describe this process this theory as or this process visually i mean it's taking place in the retina it would make sense that maybe yeah. they would experience it phenomenologically exactly as, as yeah, visual yeah. phenomena but would this also just came came to my mind, but would you anticipate that, and maybe this experiment has been done, that if you moved these birds to the southern hemisphere, they would just instinctively start migrating in the exact opposite direction? Or is it sensitive to the polarity? In it? No, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I'm not sure if anyone's done the experiment, or but may, there may be other animals that have this magnetoreception, this, this sensing the Earth's magnetic field. But that would certainly be the, be the implication, you know, wherever they are, if they're near the North Pole or the South Pole, their directional information will be towards the equator, towards the direction where the magnetic field is more parallel to the ground. So it, they don't care which, which hemisphere they're in. It should be the same thing, moving towards the equator. Hmm. And you you also said that I think this is just the only theory that's in town at this point. And it, it seems like it's very well formulated, but am I to take it that it, it hasn't been experimentally confirmed? And then would that be because of the reasons we sort of discussed earlier, where it's very difficult to do these experiments in vivo? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, all you can do is, is, is experiment in vitro on individual protein molecules the cryptochrome molecules yeah, yeah yeah and so you'd have to you know hit them you know with a, a laser pulse or something like that and 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 see if you can get some sensitivity to magnetic fields uh for the molecule sitting by itself mm -hmm. whether that's enough of a smoking gun you know uh, if that result confirms that there is a sensitivity uh I, it may convince some but others may be harder to be persuaded hmm. well just to round things out you also mentioned quantum tunneling earlier and quantum mm. tunneling in close to 200 episodes has never come up on the show and there have been a lot of episodes on on quantum mechanics so just what is quantum tunneling and then where does it fit into certain enzymatic reactions yeah so quantum tunneling is 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 a, a feature of the quantum world that we've known since almost the beginning of, of the birth of quantum mechanics it was uh, it's, it's the way we explain radioactive decay, um, a particle, um, say radium or something else, a, a, a nucleus that is radioactive that spits out an alpha particle. That alpha particle shouldn't be able to escape the nucleus. What it has to do is punch through an energy barrier, uh, what's called the Coulomb barrier. Um, we now know that quantum tunneling, you know, is 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 everywhere. It's the reason why the sun shines, because 
two hydrogen atoms or, or two nuclei of hydrogen atoms, two protons, can't get, shouldn't in, in just describe in classical mechanics without any quantumness, should not be able to get close enough together to stick in the in the first step towards nuclear thermonuclear fusion, which is what gives the sun its, its light and, and heat. Um, because two protons are positively charged electrically, so they repel. So there's a barrier that stops them from getting too close. But because in the quantum world, these things aren't really discrete particles, They're, they are spread out waves, mm -hmm. they can leak through these energy barriers. I always talk about it like a, it's like a ghost or phantom passing through a solid wall. There's a certain probability that these two protons can or you know, think of one staying where it is and the other getting through the energy barrier. Once they get close enough, then the strong nuclear force, which is an attractive force at very close distances, kicks in and they bind. And then you get the, you know, the process of hydrogen, the first step of hydrogen becoming helium uh, in, 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 in fusion. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a strange effect. It's, it's a bit like kicking a, a soccer ball up a hill. You've got to give it in, a big enough kick to get it over the, 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 the hump of the hill. In the quantum world, you could kick it halfway up and it still has a non-zero chance of disappearing on one side and just reappearing on the other. It has quantum tunneled through a region where, were it a classical particle, it would not be allowed to, to, to pass through. So we see this all the time in physics and chemistry. It's not a surprise. What was a surprise was to find it taking place inside living cells. Uh, the first people to, to, to see quantum tunneling was quantum tunneling of electrons uh, 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 in, uh, in spectroscopy in the 1960s. Then in the 1980s, a group at Berkeley in California saw quantum tunneling of protons, 2000 times the mass of an electron. So clearly much more difficult, you know, a heavier particle, but nevertheless, quantum tunneling from one part of an, uh, a molecule to another. And they showed that enzymes make use of this trick in moving particles around. Enzymes essentially are the workhorses of the cell. They, they break and build other uh, particles, proteins inside the cell. And one of their tricks is to, to shuffle and move particles around. And they use quantum tunneling to do this part of the time. So that was established in the 1980s. So it's not like, you know, a very recent thing. Uh, what we're interested in is, is quantum tunneling in a different uh, mechanism, namely in the hydrogen bonds that hold the strands of DNA together. That, that's, that's what the, the new area is that we're looking at. Hmm. And so then in, in both of these cases with, with the Robin and the DNA, the idea is that entanglement and tunneling are, are fundamental features of the world happening all over the place. And then, as you said earlier, it's only natural that through natural selection, evolution would take advantage of these features for reproductive mm. success. Yeah, but it, by taking advantage of it, it, life would have had to evolve the ability for, for this behavior to take place in cells in a way that it wouldn't normally take place in inanimate matter with that temperature, mm. with that complexity. I mean, the, the DNA example is that you've got these, um, the, the double helix, the strands of DNA is like a twisted ladder. The rungs of the ladder right. are hydrogen bonds. 
there is a, as far as I'm concerned, those are protons. I, you know, I don't, I don't talk about hydrogen atoms because my background is nuclear physics. So I don't care about the electrons. I leave them <laughs> to the chemists. I, you know, I deal with the, the nucleus of hydrogen, the proton. So this proton can quantum tunnel across from one side to the other. Um, we've, we've published several papers over the last few years, uh, very sophisticated sort of computational chemistry simulations to show that this is very likely to happen. Um, and if the proton quantum tunnels from one strand of DNA to the other, then when the DNA strands unzip in the process of replication, you know, you unzip them and then each one uh, uh, has a, a copy made of the other one that it attaches to and you get two double helices. Um, if the proton's in the wrong place in any one of these sites between the two strands, that could lead to a mutation in that base. Uh, and so it's important, you know, that, that life has, has life evolved the ability to see these quantum effects. The point is that quantum tunneling, quantum entanglement, long live quantum coherence is another example in, in photosynthesis where quantum biology uh, uh, biologists are interested should all disappear very, very quickly. Decoherence should kill off any quantumness far more quickly than the processes of life can make use of. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and what seems to be happening, is, this is what, what really interests me, is, is the structure of the environment surrounding this quantum system such that it can stave off decoherence uh, maintain quantum coherence for long enough for it to play a biological functional role. So, you know, mm -hmm. the, the structured environment is, is what's interesting. And if that is true, when, you know, then, Hey, why not? Life has had billions of years, you know, so it will, any tricks that might have been available to it, it would have finessed over generation after generation after generation. And so those cells where they have been able to maintain quantum effects to give life an advantage will have been the ones that were selected for. So, uh, mm. but it must be something special about life and evolution that allowed it to choose uh, the, these processes where quantum mechanics can play a role. Hmm. So decoherence has come up a couple of times, mainly in the context of the Everettian theory of, of quantum mechanics and this being the mechanism of the branching of mm. the many worlds. But I don't think that we've ever gone into much depth into what it really is. And I, I had been holding off on it because I knew it would come up when we talked about the arrow of time, but maybe now is a good idea to just lay out theoretically what quantum decoherence <laughs> is since we've talked about it so much. Yes, um, I, it's a bit like entanglement. It's one of it's one of those uh, uh, features of the quantum world that is not taught at a basic level, and I think it's so vitally important that it needs to be. When we teach quantum mechanics to undergraduates in physics or chemistry classes, um, we tend to deal with very simple, isolated systems, and we solve the Schrödinger equation of quantum mechanics. And so, you know, a particle at some time. Uh, is behaving in this way or quantum state is behaving in this way and you e evolve this in time by solving the Schrodinger equation and you see what is, what is doing at a later time. And then the standard way we teach quantum mechanics is say, and then we measure it. And the, ch the probability of finding a particle, say, in a certain place or with a certain energy or with a certain spin 
is is the, the numbers the, the the math gives us that that probability but there's nowhere in that the way we teach quantum mechanics how that measurement takes place what is happening when you look when you open schrodinger's box with the cat inside dead and alive at the same time what is actually happening so the everettian view uh, is one that says, you know, right, we've, we've solved the problem. That what is happening is that the quantum state never collapses, but, you know, there are all these different options. And when you make a measurement, you are just in the universe where that option is realized. And there's another you. So, but decoherence theory is, is, is more general than that. Decoherence is the, the means by which the, sur the environment surrounding a quantum system interacts with it. Uh, in a sense, you can say measures it, but interferes with it or gains information about the system. And it's inevitable that decoherence will take place because the fact is there is no isolated quantum system in, in the universe apart from the whole universe itself. So one could imagine some God's eye view outside the universe and say, well, the universe never decoheres, you know, because there's there's no environment outside it for its information to leak out into. But within the universe, any system we want to know something about inevitably cannot be maintained indefinitely isolated from its environment. Decoherence simply means the leaking out of quantum coherence, something that can be in two places at once or have more than one energy at the same time or be spinning up and down at the same time, you know, all the weird stuff that happens in the quantum world. Um, that information leaks out very quickly in the, in, into the environment. So the environment causes this quantumness to, to decohere in the same way as a, you know, a hot cup of coffee in, in the fridge will leak out its heat. So it's a bit like thermodynamics in the sense that in, in, in thermodynamics, heat leaks out from, from a hot system to a cold. In the quantum world, we talk about quantum coherence leaking out into, into its environment. Um, we, we may come to this in a moment, but another way of saying this is that it becomes entangled with its surroundings, entangled with its environment. So decoherence is a, is, a, is a universal process. It happens all the time. You prepare a quantum state that is, starts off isolated from its environment and inevitably it becomes entangled and, 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 and uh, decoheres its information into the environment in a one-way one -way process. Do we need Everettian quantum mechanics? Well, the measurement problem, uh, I don't want to, I won't get technical, but I'd, so I'd say the measurement problem is actually comes in three parts. Uh, the first two parts called the, the, the preferred basis uh, and, and, and then the, uh, the collapse of the off diagonal elements of what's called the density matrix, technical mathematical terms, they're solved by decoherence. Hmm you're still left with a final stage of the measurement problem, which is why physicists still worry about the measurement problem that you can only explain if you plant your flag on a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics. You either say there are many worlds, this is Everettian view, or you say there are hidden variables, or you say the quantum state undergoes some sort of physical collapse, spontaneous collapse. Or you say, I don't care. That's the Copenhagen view. <laughs> you say, yeah. I, don't, I, just, I just want to calculate. I just want to work out the numbers and follow the recipe. So decoherence is, is a physical process. It's not controversial anymore. It's been around for 50 years. It's been quantified and, 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 and formulated, uh, developed mathematically. 
but it doesn't solve all the mysteries of quantum mechanics. There is still then you're still a requirement to to choose a, an interpretation to explain to us how we observe the quantum world, how we see it, how we bring it into reality. This is orthogonal to the direction in which we've been going. But since you mentioned hidden variables and Copenhagen, I'm wondering if there is a specific interpretation that uh, you put your uh, chips on. I, for many years, since I was a grad student, I was never happy with the Copenhagen view. So that's the stand. It's called Copenhagen interpretation because um, the founding fathers of quantum mechanics worked at Niels Bohr's Institute in Copenhagen. So Heisenberg and Pauli and, and Enrico Fermi and others all spent time there. Um, and it's not really an interpretation. It's a, it's a recipe, right? It says quantum mechanics works. The maths are all developed and, and, and uh, uh, detailed, and it helps us learn about the quantum world. Without the, 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 uh, the mathematics of quantum mechanics, we wouldn't have understood the structure of atoms and molecules. We wouldn't have nuclear and particle physics. We wouldn't have developed modern electronics. We wouldn't have developed computers. I wouldn't be talking to you um, ac across, uh, you know, uh, uh, the internet and so on. So the Copenhagen view is you know, very often, some people talk about it as the shut up and calculate interpretation. Yeah. The other, the interpretations that I prefer are what are called realist interpretations. Yeah. What they say is that there has to be a theory that tells us how the quantum world does what it does. It's no good saying it does it, I don't care. All I'm interested in is the results of measurements, the results of experiments. I want to know how the atom gets from A to B. It must do it somehow. If I can't decide, that's my problem. Nature doesn't care whether I'm, you know, I'm shutting up and calculating or whether I'm racking my brains trying to figure out how it, it does it in some way. So there are multiple ways of, in fact, I think I tweeted about this Today there was uh, there's a there's a Twitter account I follow called Physics in History or something like that. I had a very nice summary of about a dozen or so different interpretations. It started with Copenhagen, then it went on to Everetti and Many Worlds, Bohmian Hidden Variables. I'm agnostic about which of the realist interpretations okay. uh, uh, worked, and the three front runners will be Everetti and Many Worlds, Bohmian. Uh, or uh, de Broglie bone pilot wave theory or hidden variables and spontaneous collapse theories mm. in order of choice were i <laughs> allowed to, to 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 choose which one i want to be the correct one my preference is bohmian mechanics hidden variables okay interesting so yeah so i mean everetti uh, and quantum mechanics i'm i'm i can see the the attraction <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I'm persuaded by the attraction, but I have that metaphysical mental block about infinite universes that still mm -hmm. bugs me. <laughs> yeah, I've done a couple of episodes on many worlds. Uh, Tim Maudlin, who's a friend, is is very big on on Bohmian mechanics. I've done a couple of those, but I haven't done any on spontaneous collapse or Gerard Romini Weber. But that's right. That's right. Uh, that's coming up in the pipeline. But okay, right. I've mentioned Times Arrow. Uh, a number of times already so let's let's get there uh, and so macroscopically i mean we see time as flowing in one direction namely from from past to future but do you find it useful at all to distinguish between different arrows of time when you talk about this there are certainly lots of different arrows of time that at face value don't seem to be connected with each other 
you know, there's there's the arrow of time pointing in the direction of the expansion of the universe. There's mm-hmm. the arrow of time that's pointing in the direction of increasing thermodynamic entropy, increasing yes. disorder, uh, you know, or, or the, the Boltzmann arrow of time in statistical mechanics that says it's just... Um, statistically inevitable that you know when you 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 shuffle a pack of cards they're going to become more disordered not more ordered but yeah there are other arrows of time there's you know there's the arrow of time that that tells you that um effect follow follows cause or that um uh, waves spherical waves are outgoing rather than incoming and, and 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 so on whether these are all connected or not I, I mean, at some fundamental, one have, would have to assume that they are. But the other option is that there is an arrow of time baked into the universe. And these processes are following, you know, the arrow of time comes first. It's not that the processes come first, giving you an arrow, and then you worry about how to unify the arrows. There's a single arrow of time, and these processes all point in the direction of this arrow. And that's that's the sort of idea that I'm I'm thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm currently writing a paper with a philosopher of physics, Eddie Chen, in San Diego. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Eddie. Yeah. I haven't talked to him yet, but I, I know that he's part. He's been recommended to be on the podcast a number he's of great. times. He's yeah, he's part of the John Bell Institute, which is right. How I I found yes. Him. Well, well, he's yeah. he's a collaborator with me on our, our uh, research uh, program funded by John Templeton Foundation. Uh, so, so we uh, we talk a lot. I was when I was in uh, in the US last week. Before I was in the Bay Area, I was down in LA. We had a two day workshop at UCLA, uh, organized as part of our research program, and and I had a, a nice long chat with Eddie there, developing some of our ideas along these nice. lines. The arrow of time. Yeah, I was just. I think I was hanging out. Well, I was hanging out with who I think is his graduate advisor at at Rutgers. Um, very lower this weekend so that's ah, right okay <laughs> yeah that's funny the the only other arrow that i was thinking of is the psychological arrow that we we remember the past and yeah and not the future but the significant point is that these are all macroscopic arrows pointing in one direction and presumably have some underlying connection but yes yeah what does it mean then to say that at the quantum level so at the macroscopic level, time appears asymmetric for this reason. That's another way of putting it. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say that at quant on quantum scales, time is symmetric? Do you have like the evolution of the Schrodinger equation yeah. in, in mind? Uh, oh. Yeah. So what in fact, I mean, it's symmetric in classical mechanics in just Newtonian equations of motion. Mm-hmm. Similarly, they're, they're called time reversal invariant. You switch right. time to minus time. You know, you run the movie backwards down at the microscopic scale, albeit described by classical mechanics. And again, there's no difference. Time you know, can run forwards or backwards. Down at the quantum scale, you switch time. Time reversal invariance in the quantum world is a little bit more technical because you don't just switch T to minus T. You have to take the what's called the complex conjugate of the wave function and so on. Um, but... Yeah, the fundamental equations of dynamics, and indeed in relativity theory, are time reversal invariant, which means they're symmetric in time. And so the usual argument is, which goes all the way back to the 19th century, something called Loschmidt's paradox, which says, if our fundamental laws of physics are symmetric in time, how do we see an arrow of time? How does the arrow, this arrow of time that, you know, is so manifest, even whether it's, you know, 
our memories of the past that predicting the future, so, um, entropy increasing, and so on and so forth. How does that emerge from symmetric fundamental laws? My view, I, there are there are others who, who 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 have thought and written this way. Roger Penrose is one. Lee Smolin is another. Uh, my view is that the arrow of time is more fundamental than these time symmetric equations. The arrow of time is baked in to reality. The equations that are time reversal invariant, time symmetric, are approximations because they only describe isolated systems. So this is what leads to the entanglement and decoherence ideas. There is no such thing as a truly isolated system. Yes, if you put a pendulum in a box and in a vacuum and set it swinging, you know, in principle, it'll swing forever if there's no damping. Um, but nothing is completely isolated from, from its surroundings. At some point, there'll be interaction. Even the cosmic microwave background, you know, will, will have a, an effect at some point. So nothing is isolated. Everything is, is, is an open system. And therefore, there is no such thing as absolutely 100% time reversal invariance anywhere in our universe other than the universe, entire universe itself. I'm not interested in the entire universe itself. I'm interested in being able to say something about some part of the universe. I can't step outside of the universe to talk about it. So for me, that's not interesting. I'm not a cosmologist anyway. But the fact that everything is open means there is always, down at the quantum level, entanglement decoherence. And that immediately gives us an arrow of time, an arrow pointing in the direction of increasing entanglement, in, um, increasing decoherence. So the Schrodinger equation, which is time reversal invariant, is only an approximation because it only describes isolated systems which don't exist in the real world. Hmm. Does that sound convincing? <laughs> it, it sounds convincing until I start thinking about the, the different interpretations. So the like many worlds, the, the Schrodinger equation is all there is really to describe everything and there's only one. So. Well, it's all there is for the entire universe. Mm -hmm. It's it's not all there is when you describe a system. Um, you know, the, the, in, in Everetti and quantum mechanics, you know, you, you open Schrodinger's box uh, and uh, you make a measurement. You see the alive cat or the dead cat. Before you opened the box, it was it was both. It was alive and dead. Of course, before it's decohered, before decoherence has taken place, it could be alive, dead, alive, dead at the same time. Decoherence kills off the alive, dead at the same time, but you still have the two observable um, states, it, it, uh, the alive and the dead. It's not that before you open the box, it's just your ignorance. Both states exist as far as you're concerned. They're both opening the box, you see an alive cat. There's another you in a parallel universe sees a dead cat. But that mm -hmm. measurement process has given you the arrow of time. Um, the Schrodinger equation worked before because it was assuming that the, the box is isolated from the surroundings. At some point, a measurement has to take place, which is another way of saying all systems are really open systems. Mm -hmm. And how though con connecting back to biology, how how does this all connect to the era of time? Well, 
in a in a paper that we are hoping i mean it's 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 been to the publishers reviewers have got back we've made some changes we've you know as the, in the process we've submitted back i'm hoping it'll it'll get published sometime soon this is another paper on the um proton tunneling in dna uh, and a surprising result we found is that in the process of unzipping the two strands of dna mm -hmm. there's a particular molecule an amino acid that seems to do the measuring. It's like opening the box, Schrodinger's uh, cat's box. Um, until then, the surrounding environment, the water essentially surrounding the DNA causes decoherence, but only partial decoherence. So it's not fully decohered. It's not, it's quantum, what's called the von Neumann entropy is at maximum. So it's, there is still quantumness going on there. And the proton can still quantum tunnel from one side to the other. But once it starts unzipping, that proton has to make up its mind, right? You, you can't be in both states at once, once the two strands are really separated. The barrier between mm -hmm. them is too big. Uh, and this inside this um, enzyme called the helicase, which does the unzipping, it also plays the role of measuring. So it's, if in an Everettian view, for example, it is building in the arrow of time by making a measurement saying that, uh, you know, the proton's on this side. And then Everettian would say, in another universe, that enzyme found the proton on the other strand of DNA. Uh, so both exist in different universes. So, so this quantum measurement uh, is taking place inside living cells all the time. Uh, and my argument is that the arrow of time is already there. It's already baked in. Uh, and entanglement, increasing entanglement is the direction in which the arrow is pointing. Mm, I see. So it, it's kind of like this other arrow that we didn't mention, the, the direction of wave function collapse. Exactly. Yeah. The direction yeah. of measurement. So this process sort of imposes the direction of time on the quantum exactly. phenomenon. And every interpretation, otherwise... we'll, we'll talk about this quantum arrow of time different ways. The Copenhagen view will just say uh, an a measurement is made, right? And 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 your what what was called unitary dynamics, you know, time reversal invariant Schrodinger equation, you can't use that anymore because you've made a choice. Um, and Everettian will say it's the branching of the many worlds that gives a direction in time. The, uh, the uh, spontaneous collapse uh, uh, GRW approach says that, you know, every now and again, the, the, the wave function of the system collapses uh, to a particular state that you can't go back, you can't uncollapse, right? So, so that gives it, so the all different interpretations have to have in them built in somewhere, this directionality to the arrow of time. Hmm. Well, one other dimension of the work being done at Surrey right now involves, or that I want to ask about involves something called green fluorescent protein. Mm. And I'm wondering how it's useful with regard to, well, one, what it, first, I'm wondering what it is, and then how it's useful reg with regard to coherence and quantum biology and what we've just been discussing uh, th these fluorescent proteins are a good example of trying to study long-lived quantum coherence you know a, a system that can be in multiple energy states at the same time um the motivation for it is because it's a good um model of a more complex system namely uh, the process of photosynthesis we know that plants and bacteria photosynthesize, they capture sunlight, they deliver it to the to reaction center in the cell. And one of the earliest um, uh, uh, suggestions in quantum biology 
is that photosynthesis requires a, a quantum explanation, namely that photon, that lump of, of energy, follows multiple routes simultaneously, a bit like the particle going through the famous two-slit experiment in quantum mechanics. Uh, it's an interference process that allows that photon to reach its destination with such high efficiency. Without quantum mechanics, it would just be like a pinball, randomly bouncing around inside the cell and more than likely be lost as waste heat. But it doesn't. It coherently reaches its destination. And so quantum coherence in photosynthesis is another thing that is being studied. And the green fluorescent proteins, which you can take, put them inside in a, in a laboratory in your experiment, zap them with these rapid laser pulses and see how they excite and de-excite is a means of studying whether quantum coherence can last in biological systems for, for long enough to, to, mm -hmm. to, to have a functional role. Well, I'd like to finish with just one last question, a more speculative question. But so if you think that understanding the connection between time symmetry and quantum mechanics and biology might point the way to some sort of insight that could better help us understand what distinguishes life from the inanimate, I'm wondering if, if you think this could have huge implications for how we distinguish or might distinguish upon arriving at or otherwise exploring strange new worlds, alien chemistry from alien life, for instance? Possibly. I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, we uh, you can go to, to sort of workshops uh, or, or, or talk to, you know, other physicists, chemists, biologists, where some of these ideas are, you know, talked about. Uh, you know, what is it that, that, that indicates life? What is the difference between biology and chemistry? Um, does quantum mechanics play a role? And so, yeah, th there is a there is a, a, a mix between the two. So the people, uh, for example, in Arizona, you know, Paul Davis is beyond center. You know, they, they're keen on origin of life, foundations of quantum mechanics, quantum biology, and inevitably these areas all get sort of mixed up and shuffled together. But it's sort of still a bit fluffy, you know, and you can talk to hard-nosed, you know, chemists and physicists um, who will say, no, look, you know, you're, you're trying to find this is, you know, it's like bordering on vitalism. You're trying to find some magical, you know, quantum mechanics has replaced, you know, the magic pixie dust that sprinkles mm. on inanimate matter and endows it with life. So one has to be careful. Uh, and I think certainly with quantum biology, taking small steps, even though it's cool to say quantum mechanics ex explains the origin of life or quantum mechanics explains consciousness or whatever, I think there's a danger that it, it can spill over into more speculative areas than we're prepared to be able to stand up and justify just yet, maybe in years to come. Well, Jim, this has been super fun and a lot of terra incognita for me and the show. So thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. My pleasure. It's been good fun. <laughs>